energy. Can we all just admit that I was right about Mac Jones from the start? He's good. He's not great. And they have made him worse by what they have done to him this year. The passion. This UVM team is the most athletic team I can remember in the eight years I've been covering them. They're that fast. They're that quick. They're that bouncy. The opinions on all your favorite teams. Craig Breslow might be great. But he's got to start spending money. I think he's going to, but he better start soon. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEB AM, FM, and WDEBradio.com. What's up, everybody? Happy Wednesday here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEB AM and FM and WDEBradio.com. we got a 75-minute show today. We are up until... 6.45, and then it's high school basketball. Brent Curtis will take the mic at that point. Harwood and Lamoille on the boys' side should be a good Central Vermont matchup. Danny is out today. He hung tough yesterday, but we had to give him today. He didn't sound so great yesterday, so hopefully he gets well. We got our fearless leader, Steve Cormier, on the other side of the glass, getting a front-row seat at the Brady Farkas show today. I always joke I never know if upper management's actually listening. Today, upper management is going to listen, so that means I better do a good show today, or at least... You know, don't slip up and say anything inappropriate. So, we again, uh, we got two guests show today. Hard for me to slip up if we have two guests taking up time, that's for sure. So, i I got to amend the schedule a little bit. I just got in touch with Tom Karen. TC is going to be with us at 545. Originally, I thought it was going to be 605. TC is going to be with us at 545 today. Aaron Deloney from the UVM men's basketball team is going to be with us coming up at about uh, 630 before we get on over to high school basketball. You can get in on the text line as always, 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. Let go. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont and upstate New York's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, Rouse's Point, New York, and at Swanton Lumber. They are online at sticksandstuff.com. Simple question, right? Simple question. As we start to think about the end of the Patriots season and into the new year 2024, what do you think Bailey Zappi has proven? Right? That's all I'm asking. What do you think Bailey Zappi has proven? Zappi was asked if he feels he's done enough to be the starter heading into 2024. Here was his answer. Um, you know, right now I'm kind of just, you know, trying to be where my feet are and, you know, focus on the bills. I'm sure those conversations and, you know, things like that will happen, you know, in the off season or after the Jets game. And, you know, I'll talk about that then. But right now, you know, I'm really focused on the bills and just, you know, trying to get these guys down because they're a heck of a team. They've been rolling, so there's going to be a tough challenge for us offensively to play against these guys. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll talk about all that stuff and answer all that stuff, and I'm sure those conversations will come up, you know, once the Jets game ends and into the offseason. So Zappi's clearly thinking about it, but he's not saying that he's thinking about it. He's saying he'll let the process play out. He'll go through the rest of the season. But you know he's thinking about his future. It's human nature to think about your future, especially when your future is uncertain. So what has Bailey Zappi proven to you? Has he proven enough to be the starter for the 2024 Patriots? Has he proven enough to be a stopgap? Has he proven enough that he could be trade bait for another organization? Has he proven enough that he could be your backup? 802-585-3026. Here is what Bailey Zappi has proven to me. Bailey Zappi has proven he belongs in the NFL. Right? 
And to me, that's as far as I'm willing to go. I do not think that Bailey Zappi is a franchise quarterback. I do not believe that Bailey Zappi is a guaranteed starter in the NFL. But I believe that Bailey Zappi at this point now has proven he belongs in the league. And that alone is saying a lot. This guy played at Western Kentucky for his final year of college football. He didn't play at Alabama. Didn't play at USC. Didn't play at Ohio State. Didn't play at Michigan. Didn't play at Florida State. Didn't play at Tennessee. Didn't play at UCLA, Washington. Any of the places you would think Oklahoma are are pro football power or college football powers that could turn out pros. He didn't play at any of them. Didn't play at LSU. Right? Didn't play at Mississippi State. Didn't play anywhere. Played at Western Kentucky for one year. Was a fourth round draft pick. Was cut from his cut off the roster in his second preseason. Just belonging in the NFL, I already think, is a hell of an accomplishment. Right? So I'm not trying to belittle him or degrade him or talk down to him. Belonging in the NFL is a huge accomplishment. He has showed me that he belongs there. Is Bailey Zappi a guy I'm going to turn the keys of my franchise to over? I would say no. Is he a guy that if I had my druthers about me would be my first choice as an NFL starting quarterback? That answer, also no. But could he be my backup quarterback in 2023 for the New, or 2024 for the New England Patriots? To me, that answer is yes. He has proven he belongs in the league. He's proven he's a guy who can be capable. He's proven he's a guy who can kind of do good enough with his hand being held in various ways to step up. And if I have to play in a season, a four- or six-game sample with my backup quarterback, I now trust Bailey Zappi to not go 0-4 or not go 0-6 and not completely screw it up. And with what we're seeing Jake Browning has done in Cincinnati, you know what? That's a pretty hell of a good place to be with our backup quarterback. Just don't go winless. Just don't screw it up. Look at Gardner Minshew. Can, can Bailey Zappi be Gardner Minshew? You know what? He's not as fun as Gardner Minshew. He's not as zany as Gardner Minshew, but he just might be able to be as effective as Gardner Minshew. And that alone is a huge accomplishment. Yes, I would rather the Patriots draft a quarterback in the top five. I would rather the Patriots draft a quarterback in the second round if they had to. I would rather them sign Kirk Cousins. I would rather them trade for Justin Fields. I would rather them trade for Kyler Murray. I, I would rather them do a lot of things than make Bailey Zappi their starter in 2024. But as my backup, I'm on board with it. As a guy who is a spot starter, as a guy who, hey, my starter's got a tweaked groin, can you go in and do the job for a week? That answer is yes. He has proven to me he can do that. And I would be fine with him in that role in 2024. Bailey Zappi has some very redeeming qualities. And frankly, he has some redeeming qualities that Mac Jones doesn't have or has lost. Right? And I've never been a big fan of Mac, but I do like his pedigree and I do like his draft status and his, you know, is generally his mental acumen. But you know what Zappi has that Mac doesn't? Two things. One is confidence and moxie, kind of confidence slash moxie. And the other is good footwork, right? Or good feet, I should say. Zappi has both of those, and they've come off the page to me here in the last couple of weeks, right? The Pittsburgh game, the Kansas City game, even though they lost that one, and this week against Denver, he has shown kind of that, he's kind of got that little bit of that it factor, right? Does he have 
great physical ability? The answer is no. But does he have the confidence and the, and the mental fortitude to punch above his weight class? Yeah, he does. Okay, Bailey Zappi is a confident guy. Phil Perry told us a couple weeks ago from NBC Sports Boston, heck, he might be confident to a fault. He may rub people the wrong way with his confidence. But when you are an often doubted, undersized, not great physically player, you got to have something that gets you to the top, and that just might be what it is for Zappi. Right? He believes he has a chance to win. He believes he's good enough to win. He believes he can do the job. And you know what? To his credit, he's won two of the last three. And I have to give him credit for that as well. He's got confidence. He's got moxie. And I give him credit for this too. In that same vein, he's got resolve. How many times do we see Mac Jones have a bad play and, you know, make a bad play and then compound it with more mistakes or make a bad play and then be too scared to run out there and try to make another one? Zappi doesn't appear to be scared, and it's kind of easy at this point in the year when you're playing for nothing to not be scared. I do acknowledge that, but right, he comes out. He has an awful second half against Pittsburgh. Comes out, comes out, backs it up with a great first half against Kansas City. He has an awful second half against Kansas City. He fumbles on the first play of the game on Christmas Eve against Denver, and then comes back, executes a couple of touchdown drives, plays a better second half, and then comes out for once and picks up his defense in the fourth quarter to less than a minute to go and delivers a hell of a throw on third and three to Devontae Parker that helped set up the game-winning field goal from Chad Ryland. Mac Jones wouldn't have done that, not now. Maybe Mac in Alabama does that. Maybe Mac in 2021 does that. But Mac now is so broken he can't do that, and Zappy did it. He has the confidence to do it, and I give him credit for that, and I give him praise for that. Furthermore, the feat, that's a real thing. Right? I have talked for years. What did I love about Cam Newton? Yes, that he was transparent with the media and he was generally likable, but I love that he had the ability to maneuver. He had the ability to run. He was a dual-threat quarterback. I have always wanted a dual-threat quarterback. Now, is Bailey Zappi going to ever get confused for Lamar Jackson? The answer to that is no, but he's got the he's got the beat and the athleticism to maneuver around the pocket, to extend plays, and to make things happen. Because I was talking to my dad about this over Christmas, and he asked me kind of like, he's not watching Patriots games. He's like, what's the difference between Mac and Zappi? And I said, let me let me tell you what the difference is. The difference is their footwork, right? The difference is their feet. Because here's the situation for the Patriots. The Patriots' offensive line is not particularly good. And the Patriots' wide receivers cannot separate. So when Mac is back there, the offensive line gets beat, the defensive line closes in, and then the following happens. This all happens quickly. The defense or the, the offensive receivers cannot unstick themselves from the defense while this is going on. So what Mac does is he stands in the pocket as long as possible in an effort to give his guys a chance to get open, and he gets sacked. He gets pummeled. Or... He stands in the pocket as long as possible, throws something he shouldn't throw to a receiver who is covered, and the ball gets batted down or picked. That is what happens with Mac right now. With Zappi, it's the same situation. The offensive line gets beat. The defense closes in. The offensive receivers cannot are not open. But what does Zappi do? He's able to just for a few moments roll right and buy his receiver time to unstick himself. And now there's a ball downfield that a ball has a chance to be caught. 
Zappi steps up in the pocket and fades left, and a guy has an opportunity to unstick himself. And that's the real difference. Is Zappi better than Mac? I, I would highly doubt it. As an actual quarterback who can read defenses and run the playbook and be I doubt I bet you Mac is better than Zappi at that stuff. But Zappi has the ability to cover up for the warts of his teammates right now in a way that Mac Jones doesn't. When I think about the Patriots next quarterback, I want what Zappi's doing, but I want it on steroids. Okay? When you have the number three pick, four pick, two pick, whatever it is, you have a chance to get what Zappi does, but have it be accompanied with faster feet, a better 40 time, a better arm, a better velocity on the ball, a guy that could throw the ball deeper down the field. Think about Russell Wilson in his prime. That's what Russell Wilson could do. I watched it every week for nine years in Seattle. That's what Russ could do. He could whirl out of trouble. He could step up in the pocket. He could run for 12 yards if he have to. And he could get his receivers time to unstick themselves when the line broke down around him. Okay, I would love for the Patriots' next quarterback to have the overall athleticism as Justin Fields. I will take a guy who has the athleticism of Russ in the past or Geno Smith, a guy that I'm watching now. That's the kind of quarterback that I want. It's very, very difficult in today's NFL with as bad as offensive lines are and as bad as the Patriots' offensive line has been, it's very, very difficult to be a statue. And Mac Jones is a statue. And when you are a statue, you yourself get hit or you yourself deliver balls in the face of with hands in your face that you shouldn't be delivering because you can't and won't evade the pocket. And Bailey Zappi can and will avoid the pocket, will, will evade the pocket. And he's been able to help his guy. Look, Hunter Henry didn't play in that game on Sunday night. Juju Smith-Schuster didn't play in that game on Sunday night. He's playing. Ramondre Stevenson didn't play. He's playing with a thousand-year-old Ezekiel Elliott, Pop Douglas, Pharaoh Brown, and Devontae Parker. All the same guys we complained about for Mac. He's playing with even less of them. How is he doing it? He's winning games with a confidence on moxie on grit on belief of his teammates, and on his legs that allow him to do a little bit to help the cause. Bailey Zappi, to me, has proven he belongs in the NFL. It's something we weren't sure about three months ago, four months ago, when he was getting cut after training camp. He's proven he belongs. Is he going to be my starter? Not if I have my true druthers about me. But does he belong? Yeah, he does. It's the Brady Parker Show. On WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Peter says on the text line, Zappi also doesn't have the pressure of having been a first-round pick. So given his chance he's been given, he's given everything he's got, he's kind of similar to Brock Purdy and how he's risen to the top of the quarterback room. I, I get it. Bailey Zappi is playing with house money. Okay, Bailey Zappi is playing with house money. 1,000%. And that is a far different place than Russell Will, or than, uh, excuse me, than Mac Jones was. And I acknowledge that it's a far different place. But he is still doing something with his opportunity. Do I want to start Bailey Zappi when my team is 0-0 and in playoff contention on September 10th next year? No, I don't. But for where he's at now, he's proven he belongs in the league. Gardner Minshew for 16 games, I don't think would work. Gardner Minshew for six does and is for the Colts. Well, it's a little extended this year. But still, players like that can work in small sample sizes. And I think that he's got a chance to work. Phil says, 
How about acquiring Russell Wilson? He just lost his job in Denver. No. Two years ago, I would have given up multiple first-round picks for Russell Wilson because I was that in love with him to watch him in Seattle. He is not cooked, but he is not what the Patriots need. Russell Wilson now is a guy who needs a lot of help around him. Okay, clearly. The Saints babied him to death. Or the, not the Saints. Uh, the Broncos babied him to death on Sunday. Nothing but swing passes and screen passes until the very fourth quarter. Sean Payton was trying to hide and protect Russell Wilson. I can't have that. I had that with Mac Jones. Russell Wilson is 35 times more expensive than Mac Jones. I cannot do that. And Russ only lost his job because they're trying to keep him from getting injured and be on the hook for a bunch of money financially. They didn't, Russ didn't lose his job because his backup is better than him. He lost his job because of the financial aspect of everything. They're trying to protect it. It's the Brady Farkas Show. On WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com, we're rolling. We don't need a commercial break. Corm tells me we got Tom Karen on the phone line right now. That's right, TC, our Red Sox insider over at Nesson. We got a lot of Sox news to cover here from the last week or so. TC, I know you are traveling back right now from the holidays. We have caught you in the car. I hope you had a great holiday. Thanks for being with us again. How are you? Doing well, Brady. How are you doing? Hope you had a great one. I appreciate that. Mine was uh, mine was good, relaxing enough as well. Patriots didn't ruin Christmas night, huh? Well, no, unless you wanted to get the first draft pick. Then they, <laughs> then they did ruin it, you know. But that, listen, I had fun watching the Patriots game. Right? I didn't, you, know, you can talk about draft pick all you want. It's been a miserable football season. That was a really fun game, and it was fun to see Bailey Zappi have a night. So so good for him and good to them. Yeah, Christmas Eve night, of course, but not ruined. Yeah. But nonetheless, the weekend was saved by the Patriots, which is something we haven't been able to say much this year. Let's go to the Red Sox. They're not doing a lot of saving of anything right now. So they, they miss out on Yamamoto last week. He goes to the Dodgers, 12 years, $325 million. Is that a deal you would have made if you were the Red Sox? Would you have gone that high for an unknown commodity? No, I no, I don't think I would have. It's just, it's ridiculous. I was talking to somebody yesterday, a, a friend who's a baseball executive. And, and, you know, not with the Red Sox, but we were talking about the deal, and he's like, you know, what, are you just paying for two Tommy John surgeries, like the like twelve years. It's it's the years as much as the money, right? It's just a crazy. You know, he hasn't done anything in the U.S. And listen, I think he's an excellent pitcher. I think he's going to be an excellent pitcher. I those are the kind of deals. And, and if you're the Red Sox. I, you know, John Henry's never come out and said this. And we can talk all we want about the fact that they're not spending money right now. And we all think they should spend more. There's no doubt about that. But the Chris Sales contract absolutely burned them. And I think they still sing from that. And there was just no chance they were going to go that deep. And that's without the posting money, right? So you're pushing up your $400 million when it's all said and done. 12 years is too long. The money's too long. Good for the Dodgers. You know, they've spent a billion more than the Red Sox have spent so far this offseason. So good for them. I just think, like, 29 other teams, the Red Sox decided it just had to be too much. When you look at where the Red Sox are now in the pitching market, right, we've talked a lot about Montgomery. We've talked a lot about Blake Snell. We've talked about Giolito. So Sean McAdam of the Boston Globe wrote over the weekend that basically all of those guys, not Giolito, but uh, Snell and Montgomery are too rich for the Red Sox blood. Alex Spear of the Boston Globe made it sound like the same thing. Do you feel like even those second-tier aces are out of play for the Red Sox right now? I wouldn't say completely out of play, but yeah, yeah, I agree with what they're saying because I think those numbers are going to go up astronomically because of the Yamamoto deal. I think those two guys are going to get way more than anybody thought. And I, I here's what I think the Red Sox believe. I think the Red Sox believe they could be competitive this coming year and fight for a playoff spot. And I think they're going to put together a team that can do that because there's pitching out there. We'll get to talk about the trade market in a minute. But 
I don't think they're ready to go all in because I still think they believe the next great Red Sox team are going to feature Marcelo Meyer and and Sedan Rafaela and Kyle Peel and some of the prospects who are a year or two away. So I, I just don't think they're ready to go all in with a Montgomery or a Snell, older guys who are going to command a lot of money as presently constructed because you're going to lose that first year if you don't think you're going to be a World Series champion next year. And again, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I, I know when they signed, when they finally made the, the big money decision to extend uh, uh, Ravel Devers, it was because he will be under their control through the point when those young players start to matriculate upwards. And I just don't think going for pitchers in their 30s, early 30s, at that point in their career, I just don't think they're there yet. Tom Karen, Red Sox insider at Nesson with us here on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. So a lot has been made of the Red Sox in a connection to outfielder Teoscar Hernandez, a guy who used to play for the Blue Jays, a guy I know well because he spent last year in Seattle. I think Hernandez would have a better offensive year in Boston than he did in Seattle, and I think he would upgrade the Red Sox outfield, or at least offensive, uh, offensively he would upgrade their outfield. But he's not really their need. So, TC, my question is, would they be signing Hernandez just for the sake of signing someone and shutting up the fan base, or would they be signing Hernandez so they could trade an outfielder to get a pitcher so they don't have to pay the prices you're talking about? I think ultimately it's the latter. I think ultimately the reason they would be signing Teoscar Hernandez is to be able to make a trade for a starting pitcher that probably would include a package with either Jaron Duran or Sedan Rafaela. Uh, I, you just have too many outfielders to be signed to Hernandez. And I'm with you on Hernandez at Fenway. The guy's got over, uh, it's over 600 is slugging percentage at Fenway Park. He has just always ripped it up in Boston. Uh, and guys like that tend to translate when they get to play 81 games at Fenway. So I think Hernandez is going to cost some money. I mean, I, I saw the, the, the MLB trade rumors. He's usually pretty good with this stuff. Had him around 80 million for four years. So it's not going to be cheap. Uh, but I think he's a guy who can give you a middle-of-the-order bat and give you the depth in the outfield that allows you to go address the top of your rotation through the trade market, which I think is where this is heading, because if you're not going to be in on Montgomery and Snell, you're probably going to need to go get a number one or number two from a team that's looking to shed payroll, and there are plenty of those around baseball right now. If you did get Hernandez, Hernandez, Story, Devers, Casas, Yoshida, could you just slug your way to victories? It, well, it'll help, wouldn't it? I mean, the last couple of years, home run power's been down. This team has not played well enough at Fenway Park. They have not hit enough power, and he would certainly add to that. The lineup you just said, and a, and a healthy Trevor Story for a full year is a really important part of that. Uh, but that lineup should be able to produce some runs. Again, it's not enough with the pitching staff as presently constructed. But I think that lineup, and, and if you went and got, you know, you could pick. Uh, the player that, uh, that, that, you know, whether it's Lazardo, whether it's Cease. I, I, yeah, there's a lot of Corbin Burnsog. I don't see him going to get a one year rental for all the reasons I said before. And, and I don't think he's going to sign a contract extension. Uh, you know, so I, I just think uh, go get a guy or two, uh, sign Giolito, trade for one of those pitchers, and put that lineup together. I think you've got a competitive team. Where do you think the Red Sox are at right now? 
in the course of the AL East, right? I think we look at last year and say, okay, the Rays won 99 games. They're much better. I don't know that that's the case given all the pitching injuries and given what may transpire with Wander Franco potentially not being available all year. I do think they're primed for regression. Toronto's now added Kiner Falefa earlier today. They go and make uh, another move yesterday to get Kiermaier back. Kind of where do you think the Red Sox are at right now? Oh, I think right now they're still last place in the division. I, I you know, I, I'm with you that the Rays are duper regression. I say that every year, and I'm wrong every year. So, so maybe I shouldn't say that, right? Uh, but, but I, you know, they they find a way. Uh, what, you know, the Yankees added Soto. Uh, they still need pitching. Uh, but, but I think they'll go get it. I, I still think the Blue Jays are a good team, and Baltimore is only going to get better. So again, as the roster stands right now, they're probably the weakest team in the division. But I, that's not going to be the roster they open up the season with. The roster they open with the season with is going to have better pitching. And then I think they move up that list once, they, once you tell me who the rotation is. Let's go back to last week. It was interesting. Uh, almost simultaneously, I saw them. I don't think they occurred simultaneously, but I was listening to Alex Cora on the Baseball Isn't Boring podcast talking nothing but effusive praise for Alex Verdugo. And then I heard Alex Verdugo talking to the New York media, seemingly throwing shots uh, below the belt at Alex Cora. What did you make of what Verdugo had to say about Cora? Well, he was talking about Aaron Boone and how great a manager he is and how he can't wait to play for him, a.k.a. this guy is going to do everything my last guy didn't do. What would you make of that? Oh, there's no doubt there was, there's shade thrown at uh, Alex Cora there. And I know that everybody kind of scrambled after and said that's not what he was saying. He was praising Aaron Boone, not taking a shot at uh, Cora. But that little part was a little part at the end about not airing guys out. That, uh, that, that, you know, that, that to me was directed at Alex Cora because Cora aired him out and Cora should have aired him out. The guy needs like a hustle on the field. I once was. But the second time was because you showed up blatantly late for a day game. Uh, and, and, you know, Cora called that his, his worst day as a member of the Red Sox. And, uh, you know, listen, Cora is a player's manager. Nobody has the backs of the player more than Alex Cora. But every now and then you see that he finds a guy, Eduardo Rodriguez and Alex Verdugo are two specific cases, guys who he decided needed tough love and, and tried to help get the most out of them. He did it with Erod, and, and Frankie did it with Verdugo. Said it last offseason, got to be in better shape, got to be more committed to fitness, and he had his best year war-wise uh, that he's had in his career. So he got the most out of him. And for Verdugo to say anything, and I love what Papelbon uh, went off and said on social media, uh, and, and I just, you know, Verdugo just shut his mouth and go play for the Yankees. He's got a contract here. Go get your contract because, frankly, you have yet to, to fully show your potential and fully capitalize on, on his tools uh, and has yet to become the player he should be in Major League Baseball. You know, I think about it, though, and I think, did, Ver, did Cora really air Verdugo out? One, Cora kind of does this disappointed dad routine, I think, more than just airing guys out. And two, he doesn't air, he never airs guys out. Yeah, he, and he managed Verdugo for three years. You're talking about being around him for 600 days, and he gave two days worth of sound bites about it. Like, seems like he's done his best to protect Verdugo rather than air him out. Listen, I, 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 I totally agree. And, and if you're that thin skin, well, then you better strap it on and play harder because, yep. uh, this, this guy has, again, he's been a, a underperforming player. He's been a good player and he was their best defensive. I've been waiting for him to, to live up to that potential. It hasn't happened yet. 
Tom Karen, Sox insider over at Nested TC. By the way, the Bruins are back in action today against the Sabres. The NHL's little holiday break is over. You excited to get the bees back in your uh, part of your routine? Yeah, I mean, a four-game uh, winless streak is the longest under Montgomery. Uh, you know, I'm not talking to last year, and, and I still think Don Sweeney would probably privately tell you that he's kicking himself over not getting a Bertuzzi deal done because, to me, that's exactly what they're missing right now. A little bit of, uh, little bit of toughness, a little bit more grit. Uh, they're really lacking that, and Bertuzzi gave them all of that. Uh, and, and they just they need to find some of that. And it's something you can add. There's no first place. Uh, you, you can struggle a little bit, but, but you're seeing a lot of trends right now that have been sneaking up on this team. And they need some guys like DeBrus to, to really get going. I like that they let Patra go to the uh, World Juniors, let him get a little confidence, let him have some fun, come back, be a more confident young guy. Uh, and, you know, I, I think the roster is going to need to be tweaked here, but uh, they got a goaltending, set it from the start, and that that can go a long way towards covering up some of your problems. But but we're seeing some of those trends right now uh, sneak up, and and some of the deficiencies come to light for this team. So yeah, happy they're playing again. Let's see them uh, get this thing worked out. TC, you're the best. Uh, I know you're traveling back from your holiday plans, so we'll catch up in seven days. And uh, appreciate it. Travel safe. Thanks, man. Yeah, on my way back there. We're up in Maine, and now we got the, uh, the college football at Fenway, and that's some fun with that. Looking forward to it. There you go. TC, much appreciated. We'll catch up. Thanks, Brady. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. There goes Tom Caron, our Red Sox insider over at Nesson. Yeah, Bruins four-game winless streak back in action tonight coming up uh, about an hour and a half from now against Buffalo. Lot to digest there on the Red Sox front from TC. We'll break down what he had to say, including about where the Red Sox stand right now Pretty discouraging to hear where they stand when it comes to the free agent market. It continues a period of discouragement that we've had for years with the Red Sox. We'll talk about all of it. We'll take your text next on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. This is Freddie Coleman of ESPN, and you're listening to Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. 40 minutes left in the show. High school basketball comes up at that time. Brent Curtis will be on the call from uh, Lamoille, taking on uh, Harwood today on the boys' side. Aaron Deloney from the UVM men's basketball team is going to join us at about 6.30, so a rare two-interview show today. We have a full show tomorrow. Speaking of Freddie, Freddie is going to be with us tomorrow at 5.45. Buster is on his way to Japan. So I asked Buster if it was for uh, a baseball scouting trip. Is he doing a story on Otani Yamamoto or somebody? He said, nope, a trip for pleasure. So Buster getting a little time off and going to Japan. So Good for him. I can't wait to hear Buster's stories from Japan. Has Buster ever been to Japan? Does Buster speak Japanese? Does what is Buster Buster eat Japanese food? I I can't wait. Find out about two weeks or so. So yeah, Aaron Deloney with us in a little while, and then uh, Freddie Coleman with us tomorrow. I'm not real encouraged from where we're at on the conversation with Tom Karen about the state of the Red Sox. None of what I heard is um, is encouraging to me. Tom Karen has that the Red Sox are very clearly shopping in the discount section of free agency again. And we were told that this organization was going, quote, full throttle. We were told that Craig Breslow was a guy who could make, quote, tough decisions. And here we are, a Red Sox organization that finished in last place last year, that finished in last place in 2022, that finished in last place in 2020, here we are again apparently looking for nothing but bargain basement 
deals. TC says multi-year deals to pitchers over 30 don't really appear to be in the Red Sox plan. So what are we looking for here? We're looking at one-year guys. We're looking at more Garrett Richards, more Martin Perez, more Corey Klubers. This is what the picture is being painted. Will it actually end that way on March 30th or whatever opening day is? I don't know, but that's the picture that's being painted, and that's a discouraging picture. There are, frankly, two ways right now for the Boston Red Sox to go. And they need to pick a lane as far as I am concerned. The Boston Red Sox need to either focus solely on the farm system and continue to build that. Because if you don't want to spend $300 million in free agency on guys, if you don't want to spend $250 million on free agency on guys, the best and quickest way to do that is to have your own farm system produced cheap and affordable players that are cheap and affordable on rookie deals for six years. So if you don't want to spend big, put all of your energy into the farm system and into player development, and then tell us that you're doing that. Okay, and the Red Sox have done that under High and Bloom, and oh wait, they fired High and Bloom for doing that. So if that, if you don't like that bucket, then the alternative is let's get good quickly and let's go spend as much money as we can, a la the Dodgers, a la the Texas Rangers. There are two ways to do this, and the Red Sox are trying to hem and haw and do a little bit of both, and it's P.O.ing me to endless amounts at this point. Okay. Again, there are two tracks here. Player development, farm system. You fired the guy for doing that. Or spend a lot of money like a drunken sailor like the Texas Rangers did. And, oh, by the way, the Texas Rangers won the World Series. I thought Sam Kennedy said, we're about winning World Series. We want multiple championships. That's what we've done since we had this group. Tom Werner says, we're going to go full throttle. Well, all I see now is one foot in the deep end and one foot in the shallow shallow end. That's where the Red Sox are at, and that's frustrating. Pick a lane. The Red Sox have exciting things on their roster. They have exciting young things in their farm system. If you want to build around that, then go get more of it for all I care. Okay? Don't trade Devers, but go. if you want to trade Story, then go ahead and do it. Right? If you want young, affordable, cheap players, then go trade story and get me a minor league shortstop that's up and ready. Get me a minor league second baseman that's just about to be ready. Go get me a star pitcher from someone to the top of someone's farm system. Go ahead and trade story for that. Okay? If you want to uh, move on from Tyler O'Neill, who you just got, one-year rental, to go get some 19-year-old, then so be it. Okay? If, but pick a lane. Because if you're picking the farm system lane, you never should have fired High and Bloom because that's what he was doing and apparently was doing it reasonably well. And if you want to go with the full throttle, win the World Series lane, then go do what the Rangers did and don't tell me that money is a problem. Because when Sean McAdams says the Reds that Jordan Montgomery and Blake Snell appear too expensive for the Red Sox, all I can do is shake my head and say, what the hell are we even doing here? Like, what are we even doing here? The Boston Red Sox are a team that needs to look under the couch covers every year for the, the extra nickel that can go out and make the bargain basement signing? We've tried that. We've done that. The stopgap guys, Corey Kluber had an ERA of 1,000 last year. Didn't pitch after June. Garrett Richards, we wanted to run out of town. 
moved him to the bullpen. Martin Perez moved to the bullpen. Like, we've done the stopgap guy thing. I thought we were ready to go out and try to be a player in the American League. The American League is loaded, and you are currently near the bottom of it. Okay? They're not at the bottom of it. Like, the American League is top-heavy. I wouldn't say loaded. It's top-heavy. That's a better way to describe it. Okay? Because let's look at it right now. The Yankees are better. Everybody in your division is better than you. Baltimore, the Yankees, the Rays, and Toronto. All four of them are better than you. I would say at this very moment in time, Minnesota is better than you as well. That's five. The rest of the Central, I would say you're better than. The Central is garbage. Detroit's getting better. They may be better than you, but I won't say it right now. As for out West, well, Houston's better than you. Texas is better than you. Seattle is better than you. The Angels are worse, and so are the A's. You're, you're at best like the ninth best team in the American League. I thought you were full throttle, baby. I thought you wanted to get back to the top. I thought we were about winning championships. Apparently, we're about what? Can we get to seventh best in the in the American League? Can we sneak in with 84 wins to the play? You're not going to win 84 wins with the 84 games right now with this. Not with this mindset. Not with this mentality. The only thing now that Craig Breslow apparently has is the ability to be creative. And he's going to have to get creative. Let me be perfectly straight up with you. The Red Sox are linked to Teoscar Hernandez. I just watched Teoscar Hernandez every game every game last season with the Mariners practically. I watched 140 Mariners games last year. I saw Teoscar Hernandez play in every one of them. I don't want Teoscar Hernandez on the Red Sox. Not because I think Teoscar Hernandez isn't good. I think Teoscar Hernandez is good. And I think he will be better for the Red Sox than he was with the Mariners. But because Teoscar Hernandez is not the Red Sox need. And it's sad to me if you're going to bring in Teoscar Hernandez because he is cheaper and then trade away one of your young, exciting players to go get a pitcher because you refuse to pay for one of those. That's just robbing Peter to pay Paul. Okay? You, Teoscar Hernandez is a 30-plus-year-old outfielder who is not a good defender. You already got a guy like that in Yoshida. Not as old, but already a guy who can't play defense in Yoshida. So if you bring in Hernandez... Your outfield offense gets better. Your lineup gets longer. That wasn't really your problem. Pitching is your problem. So if I am going to bring in Hernandez, I am now going to have to trade away somebody that I like, somebody of value to me, whether it's Rafaela or Duran or Abreu or whatever, to go get the pitching that's probably not as good as the pitching you're passing up on the market. You want to go trade? Rafaela for one year of Corbin Burns, I would not like that. You want to go trade Rafaela for the equivalent of Chris Bassett a couple years ago with the A's? I don't want to do that. I don't know who you're going to get, but you ain't getting Logan Gilbert from my Mariners or George Kirby or any of these other guys. So it's frustrating to hear TC talk like this, like, hey, we are looking at second and third tier free agents. They're not going to pay the big dollars. And that, by the way, they also fired the guy who believed in the farm system. Like, pick a lane. Right now you're in last place. Right now you're in last place. Tex says, hope Red Sox fans make their voices heard by not selling out Fenway next summer. What's worse is that the Red Sox management knows they can probably field a mediocre team and still sell tickets. You know what's frustrating? And I haven't been to a Red Sox game in... I haven't been to a Red Sox game 
that I really had to pay for a ticket for in the last couple of years. So I'm a little disconnected from this. But as I understand it, the Red Sox have the most expensive ticket prices in the league. The Red Sox drive up the prices seemingly more frequently than other teams in the league. And yet they're not reinvesting those dollars back in the franchise in a proper way. Right? Back in a proper on-field way. That is frustrating. And that would irritate me to no end if I were a player or if I were a fan of this organization, which I am, but I'm not a fan who has to buy tickets. Right? Last couple times I've gone to Red Sox games, I've had Red Sox tickets given to me by some, you know, connections or whatever. I'm not looking to pay $42, you know, to go sit in the bleacher seats or $78 to sit, you know, in the second level behind the first base dugout or spend $400 in total on a day for a hotel room and parking, all that. This is what the Red Sox are doing to you. They are jacking up your ticket prices and not reinvesting in the organization. Bob over in Moncton, could you imagine the Red Sox excitement and they got Shohei and uh, Yamamoto? Of course I can. We would be talking about the Red Sox every day if they got Otani and Yamamoto. And this is what frustrates me, and I guess this is easy to say because I'm not a business person, or rather I'm not a business owner. I look at business like you have to invest in order to, and then you will get a return on investment. Business owners like, no, we have to be so far in the green before we can do anything. And that frustrates me to no end. We talk about, right, to blend the news with sports, how many times do we hear this, right? We talk about the, the, the Vermont State University system. And the Vermont State University system is going to cut this, 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 and this, and this, and this until they can get profitable. And I'm like, you know what? Go the other way. Add more majors. Get better professors. Invest in your sports facility. If you build it, they will come. And if you build it and they come, then you will get money. And then you will get enrollment. And then you will get tuition. And then you will get room and board. And then you will finally solve your problems. That I, That's how I look at it. The Red Sox want to worry about money. You know what? Go sign Otani. Give him the $700 million deal. You will make that money back, and you will get rich off of it. It might take you a little while, but you will get that money back. But teams don't look at it that way, and to me, that's disgusting. Invest in your product. If you build it, they will come. If You get, you know what would work what really well? If the Boston Red Sox went and signed Yamamoto and then won the American League East and could have a sold-out Fenway every year, every game because every game mattered could then sell out a bunch of gear that says American League East champions. Maybe the Red Sox make a surprise run to the World Series. You get a, you get a bunch of shirts, next year's Christmas gifts, Red Sox American League champions, a World Series champions. Hey, we're going to throw a parade. Now we can jack up our prices a little bit because you have a product that's worth watching. Now because we're so good, we're going to be on ESPN more often. We're going to be on TBS more often. We're going to get a bigger piece of the national money. Our TV deal could be different. Whatever it is, invest in your team, make it watchable, and then people will will invest in you. The Red Sox are trying to slash everything and then, you know, get in the green. Tex says, uh, Bob and Moncton, I own a business, got to spend money to make money. True. Scared money, don't make money. Steve says, I would be surprised if Otani had any interest in going to Boston. That's fine. That's you're, That's perfectly fair. I don't know that Otani wants to come here. But Yamamoto was interested. Red Sox finished in the final five for him. Why are they not in the final one? 
while they weren't willing to go, I'm sure, to that level, right? What They're going to pass on a number of good free agents because they're too scared to invest the money. So it's not just Otani. They could go out and sign Snell and Montgomery for less than the price of Otani, half the price of Otani, and they still won't do it. Tech says, which system do you prefer, the farm system method or the win-now method? Good question. Right now, at this moment for the Red Sox, I prefer the go-spend-money method. But that's because I've been waiting four years now. In general, I prefer the farm system method. Okay? And in general, I think the farm system method is more sustainable. This here is the perf. This is the perfect way of doing baseball business, and it's. I understand. It's perfect. It's the ideal situation. Not everybody can execute it. Here's the perfect baseball situation. You have a great player development staff and a great general manager, and you draft really well, and you sign really good international free agents. Okay, so you do all the scouting stuff well. And then you build this nucleus, this core, that matriculates through your system. And they all kind of crest together in waves, right? So you get one wave that comes up at 23. And the next year they're 24. And then the next wave comes up at 23. And you just keep doing this for a period of three years or so until you've got a team full of mostly homegrown, mostly young, mostly cheap players. And then when you have that... You keep building the farm system to the point where you have surplus. And when you have surplus farm system, guys, then you go out and you start trading from that surplus because the core is built. The players are there. You start trading from the excess to go get ready-made win-now players. And then free agency becomes the supplement to everything else I just said. And you can go spend on that one or that two big-ticket items that puts the team over the top. The Houston Astros, I hate with a burning passion. This is what they did. Now, they were awful for about six years, right? It was absolutely horrible, and it was really painstaking. So I do get it's not fun to be a part of this. But guess what they did? They drafted George Springer, and they drafted Alex Bregman, and they had signed Jose Altuve, and they had Dallas Keuchel, who won a Cy Young at the time. And they built this group from within. And then it became time to, when they thought they were ready to win the World Series, what'd they do? Okay, well, they had already won the World Series in 2017. But then they go out and they make moves, right? Now we're trading from excess, we're getting Zach Granke. We're trading from excess, we're getting Garrett Cole. We're trading from excess, we're getting Justin Verlander. Then you get this kind of next wave where, hey, we're developing more of our core again. Okay, Lance McCullers is here. And... Luis Garcia is here, and Christian Javier is here, and we're trading for Ryan Presley with some of our excess, and we're picking up Jordan Alvarez in a nothing trade that we've now developed him. And now you look at the Astros. Why are they good every single year? They're not good every single year because they're signing Shohei Otani every single year. They're good because they have a constant wave of talent that is always there, right, that is always there. Uh, I'm trying to think of, of other teams that do this. Um Look, the, the Cincinnati Reds are the example right now. They are doing this. I look at the Reds. Okay, look at the Spencer Steer, Christian Encarnacion Strand, Ellie De La Cruz, Jonathan India. They, they got ten position players that are homegrown core. Hunter Green, uh, Nick Lodolo, all Brandon Williamson, all these guys who are young pitching studs. 
They are a completely homegrown team. And now they go out and sign Jamer Candelario to a four-year deal in free agency. They can afford to trade from some of their core, some of their prospects, to go get something else that they need. And very much, maybe they will. They're talking about trading Jonathan India. Jonathan India was a guy who won Rookie of the Year a couple of years ago. They can, they can freely move on from him because they have excess of everything, and now they're ready to go out and do it. If you had told me, right, when they traded Mookie Betts, okay, when they traded Mookie Betts, if you told me, look, we're going to strip it down to the studs, and we're going to do that and be bad for two or three years, but at that point we're going to look like the Astros look, I probably would have said okay. But you've hemmed and hawed, and you've done half in and half out, and you've been good one year and bad for a couple years and middling other years. Now I'm frustrated. Now I can't take a rebuild. Now I need you to go out and spend. Now I need you to do the Texas Rangers thing where you go out and you get Seager and you get Semyon and you get DeGrom and you trade for Montgomery and you just you blow the budget to hell but you win the World Series, okay? Texter says, how about the Braves? They do it correct. Correct, 100%. Braves is a good example. You found Acuna, you found Albies, you found Strider, you found Freed, you found Ian Anderson, drafted, developed, all these guys. Minter, then Albies, Riley, then you go out, say, okay, we're going to make a couple of trades here and there. We're going to go get Rosario. We're going to go get... um, we're going to bring in Charlie Morton in free agency. You don't have to spend $700 million in free agency every year if you can do the player development stuff right. Red Sox said to High and Bloom, go do the player development stuff right. He did it. Was apparently doing a pretty good job of it. They canned him anyways, and that's what ticks me off, and that's what's ticked me off from the start. Um, man, I, I want to be excited about baseball season. I'm itching for the new year, right? Patriot season's over. I'm loving the Celtics. I'm enjoying the Bruins. I promise I'll start enjoying the Bruins, people. I'm enjoying UVM hoops. I want to be excited about baseball season. We are a month and a half away from spring training, from going to Fort Myers, from seeing the Red Sox in Fort Myers. I want to be excited about it. It's hard to right now. There are things to like. I don't think this Red Sox team is a 110-loss team, but they're not a playoff team either. And it looks like it's going to be another year spinning their wheels if this is the attitude that they're going to operate under. It's very, very frustrating. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. As I mentioned, I am excited about UVM men's basketball, and one of the leaders of the UVM men's basketball team is their fifth-year senior guard, Aaron Deloney. Aaron Deloney is going to join us from the road as he gets ready to come back to Burlington. AD with us next on DEV. This is Field Yates of ESPN, and you're listening to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV Radio and the WDEV app. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. The UVM men's basketball team is 9-5 and five this season, finishing up the non-conference coming up January 2nd against Brown. Our old friend TJ Sorrentine, the associate head coach over at Brown. Catamount suffered a really tough loss in the final game before the uh, Christmas holiday break, losing in that buzzer beater against Miami of Ohio. Joining us now is one of the team leaders of this Catamounts group, who, again, is 9-5 and five right now. It's fifth-year senior guard Aaron Deloney. AD, thank you for being with us. We gave you the off day yesterday to enjoy a little extra time with family, so hope you had a great holiday and appreciate you being with us once again. How are you? Appreciate it, man. Yeah, it was good. You know, got to spend time with the fam, ate some good food, just enjoying it, uh, ready to get back to work. Back in Oregon for the holiday? That's a long trip for not a lot of time. About nine hours uh, total flying, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm back here enjoying it. 
I was actually watching the uh, Blazers game last night against the Kings. I was watching the uh, – have you ever, did you ever go to a Blazers game growing up? So when I was, like, in middle school and high school, I would go all the time. Uh, the organization my dad works with used to get tickets to, like, every single game. So whenever I was free, didn't have, like, practice or anything or workouts, we would go all the time. So that was, like, the Brandon Roy days when I was growing up. So it was really fun. Um, and I was Is that, like, where you would – play high school state championships and things like that like if you played it it used to be called the rose guard now it's some corporate name but have you played there before uh so not for high school when i was in middle school um that was the site but they changed it once i got to high school so we actually played at university of portland but um in middle school me and my friends won a three-on-three tournament and so (laughs) the winner of that got to go at halftime and play like a three-on-three tournament against like the other champions on the rose garden court so that was at halftime of a Blazers game? Yeah. What was that like? That had to have been pretty crazy. No, it was really fun. Uh, you know, the crowd that was was into it because we were, like, young, smaller kids, so they were excited every time we put a shot up. Um, it was it was a, a good experience for sure. We're talking with Aaron Deloney, UVM men's basketball standout. Team is 9-5 and five right now. Man, really tough loss coming into the holiday break, that game against Miami of Ohio, a game that you were up five with – like 12 seconds to play. I think they hit a three with like four seconds to play. It's kind of the exact opposite of the Yale game for you. Talk to me about what happened at the end of that game against Miami of Ohio. Yeah, it was crushing, man. We we had a lead, missed three throws. I think that their last three possessions, they banged three contested threes. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it sucks, you know, when that happens. But when you have that mu- much luck you kind of had against Yale, um, you know, something's kind of bound to, bound to, you know, kind of bite you back. So props to them. You know, they made some really tough shots and executed down the stretch, and, you know, we didn't. You know, it's interesting because the missed free throws was a big story in that game, right? 17 of 28 at the line. But I think to myself, as tough as it is to miss 11 free throws, you also got to the line 28 times, which is something you haven't done a lot of this year. And I'm like, you made 17 free throws when, you know, I'm complaining when you only make four or something like that. So how do you balance? Like, yeah, we missed, but at least we made the adjustment to get there. Yeah, I think that was like our high for the season. Um, coaches were on us about the past couple games, but we don't get to the line. We got to draw some fouls uh, just for a way to create easy points for us, you know, and we did it. So I think, I don't know, maybe we were just surprised that we were at the line. Um, I don't know, but uh, it's definitely tough when you miss that much. But, um, you know, it'll balance out over time. What was that road trip like here going into the holiday, keeping everybody focused? You had the great win against Toledo, really blew them out, putting up 86 points. Then you're playing again close to the holiday. Kind of what what was that road trip like? Um, It was fun. You know, it's always tough playing right before, you know, everybody's going home because maybe the focus isn't there. So that was kind of our, our mindset. Um, um, let, let's get these wins before the holiday. Let's go home on a good note. Um, we were trying to go 10-4 and four going into the break. Um, just didn't work out that way. But I think the Toledo win was really big. I think the Virginia Tech one showed us, um, you know, what we need to get better at, what where we need to improve at. And I think that's why we came out so good against Toledo. And then obviously the Miami-Ohio one, we just dropped a big one there. But like I said, uh, they did really good. And, you know, the road trip, it, it taught us a lot. You know, it's, it's interesting. I want to make sure I ask the question in the right way. Shamir Bogues is a phenomenal player, and your team is much better when he's on the floor. Yeah. That said, when he hasn't played and you've been the primary point guard, you've had some very productive games. 
So how do you turn that production when you're running the show by yourself into that same production when he's there alongside you? Right. I think, I think it's just adjusting, you know, seeing, seeing what I could do um, from that primary spot, I think showed the coaches and my teammates uh, some different looks um, going back on film, just watching some stuff. Um, and I think, you know, maybe when he gets back, we, we can switch a little bit on and off. So it's not uh, him having to carry the load the whole game uh, when he's out. I can play that spot. And then, you know, it's just we can be interchangeable at that spot um, and kind of just giving the, the other team different looks as well. Seen it a few times from you this year. Really saw it against the Toledo game a couple of times. You're getting very, very good at this, like, get to the get to the elbow, step back jumper. How much have you been working on that this year? That feels new-ish this year. Maybe it's not, but it feels it to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm just finding spots out there where I can score. You know, when you when you get comfortable with something, it's kind of just like an instinct, to, you know, to keep doing it. Um, but, I mean, the mid-range is, I think, an efficient shot, especially when you get a paint touch. Um, so as long as I get there, I think I can keep knocking it down. What's the schedule like? Obviously, you know, have a, a lengthy break here. You're out in Oregon. When does the team come back? When's the first practice coming back? Kind of take me through the schedule here for the next week or so. So I'll head back tomorrow, then we'll practice that next day. So we get like a couple, three, four days under our belt before we, three, four days of practice before we uh, go and play Brown. Um, so, yeah. Is that first practice back from the holiday, is it a heavy conditioning practice, kind of getting everybody back into it? Is it a heavy game plan practice? What kind of goes into those first practices back from the holiday? Yeah, the first couple ones, since we have uh, some time, it'll probably just be a lot of up and down, um, getting our win back, uh, probably a lot of five-on-five five just to go through reps, go through our plays, um, kind of just like a refresher and to get our win, basically, and then once we get closer – to the actual game, that that's more when we go into scout and whatnot. You know, it's interesting. I asked this question early in the season of uh, of Emma Utterback on the women's side, right? So, like, I didn't play college basketball. I played, you know, all four years of high school, though. A lot of high school practice is spent running, right? It's running for punish. I feel like I ran it for punishment all the time, right? Uh-huh. Running for turnovers, running wind sprints, sideline to sideline, didn't matter. How much of that happens in college basketball? Does it, does it, is that a very high school thing or does that still happen in college? I, I think in high school, it's a big emphasis because those, I think not too many high school co- coaches are like that experience. So that's what they see. That's what they know. That's what they think. Turnover, whistle on the line. I feel like high yeah. school whistle heavy, um, with coaches because they got that power kind of and authority. Um, and I think college, I think it depends on where you go. Cause I, I have friends here that come back for break that play. They're like, man, we run 24 seven. But at Vermont, it's like we we run like sometimes we'll play like a live set. And then at the end of that set, whoever loses has like a down and back or a double down and back. And we play like five of those sets. So like the most running you're really doing in, in one of our normal practices is like five down and back. So it's not it's not too much running heavy. I think our coaches want to get us conditioned by playing um, in a more live set. So it's more realistic for us to be conditioned. Last non-conference game is against Brown. Uh, then the conference play is going to start. What do you want to get out of this last conference game to kind of set you up for America East play? Obviously a win. And I think I think uh, establishing our defense, you know, I think we're kind of inconsistent on that side. Um, hopefully getting Shamir back. Uh, like you said, when he's on the court, we're a completely different team. So hopefully um, we get him back for that game and kind of establish uh, who we are on that end. Um 
And hopefully going back and watching the film after that game, it tells us that, you know, we're in a good spot and moving into conference play, um, just seeing where we're at. I'll get you out of here on one NBA question. We talked a lot yesterday about the Celtics. We talked a lot about Derek White, right? He's getting a lot of pub nationally for just being a good team player and always making the right plays. Yeah. In your perspective, what makes a really good team player? Like what qualities do really good team players have? Uh, there's a lot, honestly. I think, um, I think their mindset is the biggest thing. I think for Derek White, it's his unselfishness. Uh, one, knowing he's playing with two, maybe three uh, with the way Porzingis is playing, but Jalen Brown, Tatum, even Drew Holiday, you got so many great guys in front of you um, that probably should have the ball before him, um, but still being able to carve out a role and, and like thrive and excel in it. Um, and he's doing the stuff that they don't really want to do um, because they're stars. So Derek White is probably guarding the first or second best player, um, shooting shooting shots that are kind of in rhythm, not trying to go out and get his, and just kind of doing whatever the team needs. Um, I think every team, like if you have a guy or two just like that, I think you, you're set up really well. So I think it's just the unselfishness and doing whatever the team needs at any given time. I am not the fashion police. I've asked you about your hair once. Now i got to ask you this one. UVM posted a picture the other day of you, and I can't remember – what it was, but I noticed a couple of leg tats. Are these new or have I just never noticed these before? No, nah, I've worn tights. Uh, I've worn tights forever. So <laughs> the one game I didn't wear them, you probably, you probably saw them. I've had yeah. them either like freshman year or senior year in high school. So I had them for a while. Special meaning behind. I always like, I love a good meaningful tattoo story, a special, special cool meaning behind any of them or, you know, not, not, yeah, my, not my business. My, most of my tats obviously have, a, uh, most of them have a meaning. Uh, the one on my leg is actually, it was a silhouette of me and my dad. Um, I think it's an exact picture of us. We were at the zoo when I was like three, maybe. Wow. Uh, it was somebody traced that exact like stencil and I just got it on my leg and he has one, the same match one on his arm too. Very, very cool. I do love a good tattoo story. Aaron Deloney, UVM men's basketball standout. Catamounts back in action January 2nd against Brown. AD travels safe back to town. We look forward to watching you guys play in a couple of days, and we'll catch up in two weeks. Appreciate it. Happy holidays. Absolutely. Happy New Year also, Aaron Deloney, UVM men's basketball. Look, I, I like tattoos. I love the stories behind them. I'm way too afraid of needles to actually get one myself, but that's a pretty cool tattoo story there for AD. And, yeah, that was it. He wasn't wearing tights in this picture. He's always wearing the leggings when he plays, so – there you go. Um, good stuff from AD about what happened, honestly, at the end of the Miami of Ohio game. Cool stuff kind of about him anecdotally going to Blazers games growing up. Texter said really liked that story, so that was pretty cool also. And uh, it really is kind of a key for this team to figure out how to get Deloney to play as well as he does when Shamir Bogues isn't there to play that well when Shamir Bogues is there because they certainly go hand-in-hand. Hand they're really, really important for this team. So that was Aaron Deloney, our UVM men's basketball standout. Emma Utterback is going to join us next week from the Catamounts. Women's team shall be with us on Tuesday of next week. Tomorrow we'll have Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio. You can go download these interviews off the podcast channel, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and WDEVradio.com. High School Basketball is coming up next with Brent Curtis. He's on the call from Lamoille as Lamoille takes on Harwood in a good old-time Central Vermont battle. We'll be back at it again tomorrow from 530 until 7 here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Thanks to Corn for pressing all the right buttons. We'll see you tomorrow.